Let's uh, begin by praying and asking God to bless uh, our time together. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you now and we ask that you would bless us, that you would speak to us through your words, that you would encourage us and strengthen us, that you would help us to catch a glimpse of your glory uh, and your majesty uh, and your honour in Christ Jesus. Lord, uh, help me to speak, help all of us to hear, to receive your words and to believe them uh, and to be blessed by them. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, who doesn't love the Psalms? Uh, As I said before, they're a great book to go to. They're a great book that many Christians love to go to when life is falling apart. Uh, and particularly for Christians who've experienced the kind of broad range that life has to, uh, the broad range of experiences, the ups and downs of life, uh, particularly for those Christians, the Psalms uh, are a great place to go to because they mirror those experiences that we have. Uh, A man in my church recently passed away. He was a man who suffered uh, from mental illness and who'd had a pretty tough life in lots of different ways. And whenever I spoke to him, he'd always tell me about the psalm that he'd been reading. And I got the impression from talking to him that what he would do is he would just read through the psalms and he'd get to the end of the book of psalms and he'd start again at the beginning. Because every time I spoke to him, uh, he'd been reading the psalms. I think he read other things as well. But the psalms particularly spoke to him. I know one person whose rule it is that if they don't get uh, their regular Bible reading on a certain day, they don't get to it, but they will read at least one psalm. I think we get the psalms because they resonate with our experiences and I think we get the psalms because we get poetry. We instinctively know that when we read poetry, it's someone else writing about their own experience uh, and that we read their experience and, and and read our experience through the lens of what they've been through. And and the Psalms, I think, are very much like that. They're they're written about other people's lives, but they still speak to us. There's lots of ways to look at the Psalms. Uh, You can look at the Psalms as a whole. There's a fad doing that at the moment in kind of Psalms research. It's called the canonical approach to the Psalter. It's very interesting uh, and it's quite helpful. It's about how the whole book of Psalms fits together. But you can look at the Psalms uh, uh, one at a time as well. You can work your way through them consecutively or you can look at Psalms that have similar themes. Every now and again in my church we look at the Psalms. We haven't done it for a while actually, but we've looked at the way that the Psalms, we've looked at Psalms that speak about the Christian life, we've looked at Psalms that talk about the coming of Jesus, we've looked at Psalms that that, that are used in the New Testament to talk about the death of Jesus. What I want to do this morning, today, is to look at three psalms, chosen more or less at random, but three psalms which talk about different aspects of the Christian life, and I think different aspects, but aspects which are really important, uh, or perhaps aspects that are underplayed as well. I want to spend some time with you thinking about what the Christian life looks like and what it ought to uh, look like as well. We have ads, we have TV shows, we have books, we have family and friends telling us 24-7 what life should be like. 
But it's useful to step back from that and to spend today thinking about what God thinks our life should be like, what it should look like. Well, the first two psalms are probably the most famous that we're going to look at, Psalm 1 and Psalm 23. I reckon they're probably two of the most well-known, even for people outside the church. Uh, And then also we'll look at Psalm 145, which is probably uh, a little less well-known. The title uh, in the book, I've changed. I've come up with a new title, which fits the others. Uh, I've called it A Life of Delighting in God's Words. Uh, Well, there's not really any better place, I think, to to start than than with Psalm 1 and thinking about the dimensions of the Christian life. Psalm 1, together with Psalm 2, is often thought of as kind of an introduction to the whole of the book of Psalms and I think there's a lot of merit in that idea and we'll see a bit how that works a little bit later. But Psalm 1 itself is really actually very simple. It's comparing the way of the righteous with the way of the wicked. It begins by looking at the way of the righteous and it begins by saying that the way of the righteous is not like something. The way of the righteous is not the way of, the, of sinners. The blessed person, the righteous person, verse 1, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. The picture is one of steady decline. There's a famous series of eight paintings by William Hogarth. I don't know if you know them. Ironically titled The Rake's Progress. Do you know? Uh, if you don't know them, go home and Google it. It's... Uh, wonderful set of of paintings. But the eight paintings depict the slide of a wealthy young man into destitution. In the first painting, he comes into his inheritance and with all this new money, he dumps his girlfriend. In the second painting, uh, we see him throwing a lavish party. The third painting depicts him in a tavern surrounded by prostitutes. In the fourth, he's lost his fortune as he narrowly escapes arrest for unpaid debts. In the fifth, he's desperately marrying an elderly rich woman in an attempt to get her fortune. The sixth sees him in a casino, the seventh in prison and the eighth at a madhouse. And there are lots of stories, aren't there, in literature, uh, in art, that tell that same story of a decline from riches to poverty, from success to failure, from a good life to a destitute life. And here too in Psalm 1 there's a kind of a rake's progress. The condition of the unrighteous person moves from walking to standing to sitting. There seems to be a kind of increasing comfort with wickedness and evil. At first the person dabbles in it, then they stand in it, And by the end, they're sitting in it. They've plonked themselves in it permanently. It's a common enough script, I think, uh, if you've been around the block a few times. At first, a person begins to shift who it is that they listen to. The advice that they increasingly take comes from unbelievers rather than from God. It's often matched by a slow drift away from the church. Whenever I see someone drifting away from the church, I always think to myself, It's only a matter of time now before they leave the faith. Or if they don't leave the faith, that is, if they don't stop calling themselves a Christian, 
it's only a matter of time before the life that they're living is no longer really a Christian life. They stop listening to the Bible, they start listening to their friends, the television, the internet, their unconscious desires. Next, the company that they keep is increasingly unchristian. The kinds of things that they enjoy becomes increasingly godless. If they're young, it's probably parties where there's too much alcohol or drugs or sex or something like that. If they're middle-aged, it's probably other people who share the same all-consuming desires for a house paid off, a nice car, and a career and career distinction. If they're old, it may be people who share the same regrets and the same bitternesses. At first they change who they listen to, then they change the company that they keep. And finally these people become so hardened in their rejection of God that God and his people become the object of their ridicule and scorn. It's interesting, isn't it, that mocking is the final step in the process. <laughs> we live in a society which loves to mock. But actually mocking is often the sign of great spiritual decay. What's so striking is that this terrible decline, this rake's progress, begins when the person stops paying attention to God and starts paying attention to others. They stop listening to God and start listening to godless, wicked people. You can start, can't it, with kind of very seemingly innocent pieces of advice. Sin has no consequences. Sin is more fun than righteousness. You're worth it. The gospel can be received without great cost. Well, if you think you're in the middle or maybe in the middle of that decline, please stop now. (laughs) Stop listening to people other than God and start listening to God's words again. Stop standing in their ways. Stop sitting in their seats. Or if you know someone who is in the middle of that decline, it's often easier for us, isn't it, to see other people to recognise these things in other people more than in ourselves. If you see it in someone else, please speak to them before it's too late, before they've descended to the end of that process and they're sitting in the seat of mockers. It's very hard to call people back from that, from that place. God can do it. But how much better to intervene at the start rather than at the end? There are lots of ways that we can take counsel from sinners but here in this psalm the danger is, the danger that the psalm puts before us is that the more that we listen, the more we begin to adopt unrighteous ways until before we know it we're mocking God. So the way of the righteous is not the way of sinners. In contrast, the way of the righteous is something else. It is the way of delight in the law of God. Look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Notice what is the opposite uh, to the way of verse 1. 
Oh, sorry, notice what the opposite way of verse 1 is not, I should say. You might expect that the opposite of walking, standing and sitting in the seat of uh, sinners and mockers, the opposite of that would be to walk, stand and sit in the way that righteous people take. But that's not what it is. That's what the righteous person looks like in the long run. But in the first place, they're defined by something else. The opposite of walking, standing and sitting in the way of sinners is not to walk, stand and sit in the way that righteous people take, but rather it is to delight in and meditate on God's words. The way of sinners begins by listening to the counsel of the wicked, but the blessed person listens to God. What's extraordinary in this psalm is that the secret source of this person's blessing from God is not sinless perfection that comes from themselves, it's not their extraordinary attempts in obedience, but rather it's their delight in and meditating on the words of God. Verse 2 says that the person is, uh, who is blessed is the person who delights in the law of the Lord and when we hear law, I think often we think commandments, but in the Old Testament, commandment is quite a different word from uh, the word used here. It's a different word with a different connotation. The word translated law in verse 2 is from a Hebrew word, Torah. Torah, it basically means instruction. It includes God's commandments, but it also includes everything else. It includes things like the creation account, the account of the life of Abraham, who is righteous by faith. It includes all those strange rituals in Leviticus, like the washings and the, and the sacrifices and the cleansings. It includes the construction of the tabernacle as a kind of portent of God coming to dwell among human beings. It includes the accounts of God fulfilling his promises. It includes the accounts uh, of people repenting and, and turning to faith in God. It includes all God's words which were written down in the Bible. The righteous person meditates on those words. Paul says in Romans 3.20, but now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. That is, the law and the prophets didn't just tell people what they needed to do, but it testified to the gospel of righteousness by faith. It's really important for us to see that this delighting and meditating on the law of the Lord involves more than just meditating on the rules. Because God's words say so much more than just do this and do that. They say things like, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's but it was because the Lord loved you. They say, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. It's not because of your righteousness. For you are a stiff-necked people. They say, Abraham believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. They say, now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or Beyond your reach, it's not up in heaven that you may have to ask, who will ascend to heaven and get it and proclaim it to us that we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us 
so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. In them God says, I welcome sinners. In them God says, I hate the proud, but welcome the humble. In them God says, I hear the poor and the needy and those who cry out to me in distress. And that's just the Old Testament. Think about the even greater words that have come since then. If it was blessing to meditate on the law of God when all people had was the Old Testament. And think David, as he wrote, had only a fraction of the Old Testament that we have. If that was a blessed life, think about how much greater is our blessing when we have the words that God has spoken through Jesus, who says things like, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Who says, whoever comes to me I will not drive away. Who says, repent and believe the good news. Who says, I am the bread of life. Who says, I am the good shepherd. The person who is blessed, says Psalm 1, is the person who delights in and meditates on those words of God. Now the idea of meditation here is not a contentless emptying of the mind, you know, sitting there kind of with your legs crossed and and fingers in the air or whatever it is, uh, emptying your mind of all thoughts. That's not what meditation is. The word behind that, the Hebrew word, is a word that often refers to speaking under your breath. So the idea is of speaking God's words to yourself, almost. In other words, I think it's delighting in and meditating on is really just another way of saying believe. That is, if you believe in God's words, you hold on to them in your heart, don't you? If you believe God's words, you speak them to yourself and you Remind yourself of God's truth in the face of Satan's lie. You you mutter them to yourself. You remind yourself of them because you believe them, because you want to remind yourself of what is true. So Satan says, the gospel is useless. No one will ever believe it, so don't bother saying anything about it. But God says, the good news about Jesus is my power to salvation. Satan says, nobody at this church cares about you. You may as well leave. God says, love my church in the same way that Jesus loved my church. A bunch of sinners who didn't love him half as much as he loved them. Satan says, God hates you and can never forgive you. God says, when you were my enemy, I loved you. Satan says, God is not winning. Look at how Christianity is crumbling. God says, I've already won. Look at Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Satan says, enjoy life life now rather than waiting for eternity. God says, to know and love Jesus and to follow him is to really live, both now and in eternity. We need to hold on to God's words in our hearts, to speak them to ourselves, to believe them, 
And that's actually what the rest of the Psalms do, isn't it? The Psalmists speak God's words to themselves and they speak God's words to God in prayer. They mutter to themselves and remind themselves of the truth of God. They say things like, God, you promised that you would never forsake us, but it looks like you have. What's going on? Or they say things like, to summarise a lot of the Psalms very briefly, my life is falling apart, but I know that God is good. And I know that in the end he'll triumph. And I know that now that the wicked seem to prosper, yet for me it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. And though my flesh and my heart may fail, yet God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What are the psalmists doing? But speaking the words of God to themselves. Meditating on them. Reminding themselves of them and speaking those words to God. God, what's going on? I don't understand. But I know that you can do something about it. Because it says so in your, in your words. In your word, the Bible. It's not that reading God's words is powerful in and of itself, nor is it just that we pick some of God's words to believe and then leave others out. The rest of the Bible shows us that we need to believe God's words about Jesus in particular. That we need to believe that Jesus is the one through whom God is making things right, making us right with him, putting the world back together. But it's not that those words about Jesus are powerful if we just repeat them over and over in our heads like a kind of a mantra. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. I was reading a book uh, last night actually a strange book called Dispatches from Dystopia. Anyway, it's an interesting book. Uh, and she was talking about Hasidic Jews. And I didn't know this, but Hasidic Jews, uh, they have the, uh, the, the Talmud and other kind of uh, Jewish writings, but they don't believe that the content has any significance. That all you need to do is to read those words and to speak those words and that kind of is where the spiritual life comes from. So they sing them and read them and, and do all kinds of things. But that's not what the Bible is saying. That's not what the writer of Psalm 1 is saying. It's not empty words repeated, but words believed. God's words are powerful if they're believed because God is powerful and his promises are received by faith. They're powerful words because they call us to believe the good news about Jesus. They're powerful words because the Holy Spirit uses them to reveal to us the Jesus in whom we are to believe. The Holy Spirit uses them to to give us faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit uses them to reveal more of Jesus in order to make us more like Jesus, sanctifying us in the truth. Delighting in and meditating on God's words is powerful because in them we find Jesus. We meet Christ. And in Jesus we find righteousness and life. Well, the psalm then goes on to give us a picture of what a person who cherishes and believes God's words about Jesus will look like. Look at verse 3. He is like 
a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. It's useful to know, I think, that Israel was a place and is still a place which had many wadis. A wadi is a dry riverbed that floods at various times throughout the year uh, or whenever the heavy rain comes. And when the rain comes, the wadis fill and the desert springs to life. So it's a little bit like what happens uh, in somewhere in Australia, like Lake Eyre. Uh, you might remember a few years ago after the heavy rains uh, in Queensland, all that water in the inland river systems flooded into Lake Eyre and it just sprung to life. It's, it's incredible uh, to see that out of this barren wasteland, this life just uh, appear in the middle of nowhere. But as astonishing and marvellous and wonderful and beautiful as that transformation is, trees in those situations live a kind of a feast or famine existence. To live by a wadi is to not know what life is going to be like tomorrow. In contrast to that, the writer of Psalm 1 says that the blessed person, the person who delights in and reminds themselves of the words of God and believes the words of God, that person is like a tree planted beside a permanent source of water. It's not up and down, uh, there one day and gone the next. This is a, a tree planted beside constant water. Trees which bear their fruit in the right season, at the right time, who never die, whose leaves never wither. It's a picture of abundant and beautiful life resulting from a life of believing God's words. Lake Eyre is a barren wasteland at the moment. Not so the person who believes and cherishes God's word. I don't know about you, but I find uh, ministry and life exhausting. Uh, sometimes it feels like the week, the end of the week is so far away that I'm never going to make it. It can be for all kinds of reasons. Perhaps it's a long, slow battle over 40 years dealing with a difficult child. Maybe it's the difficulty of persevering in marriage and continuing to show the love of Christ when you feel like you're doing all the loving and not receiving anything back in return. Perhaps you've been labouring in ministry for 10 years, reading the Bible with someone, leading a Bible study group, running a church, and you're discouraged and you're burdened by the lack of growth or hurtful criticism? How can you keep being faithful to God, keep bearing fruit? How can you keep bearing the fruit of costly Christ-like love and self-denial? How can you keep showing kindness, keep loving, keep being joyful, keep being patient, keep being gentle? How can you do that? when you're exhausted and tired and hurt and broken. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and his leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. 
God says the secret is believing in him and meditating on his words and holding them in your heart. It's easy for us to think that believing God's words about Jesus, believing the gospel, is what we do at the beginning of the Christian life and then you've done that once and you kind of move on to other things. But the secret of of life, the secret of life in Christ is delighting in God's words and speaking them believingly to ourselves. God's words are powerful words because they tell us about Jesus. They tell us about the Christ who delivers us and redeems us and makes us right with God. And if we believe God about Christ, then God will make us like a tree with a constant source of water and fruit at its proper time. But that's not quite the end of the psalm, is it? Because the psalm ends with another contrast. Verse 4, Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. You probably know, you may know that, that chaff is the kind of the lightweight husk of grain that breaks off when you smash the grain up. Uh, back in the day, the people would gather the grain from the fields and then they'd put it on hard ground and they'd beat it with a winnowing shovel and then they'd toss the grain in the air and the chaff would fly away uh, and uh, the grain would be left behind. I went uh, and visited a friend uh, a few years ago who was working on a, po- a poppy farm, building a biodiesel plant. And uh, I, walk, I, I walked in and, and there was so much kind of, really it was, it was chaff, flying through the air and it was so fine and it got in your eye. It was the most aggravating uh, thing to get in your eye because it's just, it just flies away. It, it gets caught in the breeze. It's good for nothing. God says that while people who believe his words are like trees planted by rivers, the people who follow the way of sinners who believe their words are like chaff. They're blown away. They're never seen again. You can be a Nobel Peace Prize laureate. You can devote your life to reducing poverty, restoring sight to people, or establishing medical clinics in remote areas, you can leave an incredible legacy. But if you don't know and trust Jesus, if you don't walk in the way of righteousness, meditating on and believing God, then God's perspective on your life is that it's like chaff because you've rejected Jesus. Not because God is bitter or angry but because God made us. The beauty in people's lives is a God-given beauty. And it's the ultimate rejection, isn't it? To ignore and deny the God who's made you who you are. Verse 5 gives us the perspective we need. Therefore the wicked will not stand the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. 
but the way of the wicked will perish. It's sobering to think that in God's eyes, such great people in our world are like chaff, which the wind blows away. To paraphrase uh, one man, in eternity after 15 billion years have passed, no one will be celebrating the life and achievements of eminent atheists but every cup of cold water given in the name of Jesus will be remembered. This psalm is a psalm of biblical wisdom. So it paints things in stark contrasts. But it does that in order to force us to make a choice. There are only two ways to live. The way of the righteous or the way of the wicked the way of delighting in and believing God's words or the way of those who don't. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, you have spoken to us in the past through the prophets uh, and in these last days through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, help us to be people who not only hear your word but believe it, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, your Son, and to put our trust in him, to believe your perspective on the world, to believe your ideas of what's right and good and what is unholy and unrighteous. Lord, help us to believe you and to trust you and to be blessed by you, to be people planted by streams of water who yield fruit in its season, people who, whatever we do, prospers because of your grace and your mercy and your kindness. Father, we ask all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.